as we read God's Word together and turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Chapter 17 is where we will be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you today, it will be helpful to have one in front of you as we study God's Word together. And so you can find this morning's text on page 11 in a chairback Bible nearby you. Uh, one of the most famous preachers in England in the 19th century was a man named Octavius Winslow. He, he wrote a book called The Precious Things of God that really has never gone out of print ever since it was written. And one of the chapters is titled The Preciousness of God's Promises. And he starts that chapter by saying the promises of God are the jewelry of Scripture. Every page of this sacred volume is rich and sparkling with these divine assurances of God's love, faithfulness, and power towards his people. And we come to a text today, chapter 17 of Genesis, that is full of God's promises towards his people. Love, faithfulness, power worked on their behalf. So kids, as I read the passage, which is quite long, see if you can find all the promises that God speaks in this covenant of which we read. So let me read the text and then I pray for our time and we'll begin together. So here now as our covenant making and promise keeping God speaks to us. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, because she will be blessed. Her forevermore I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. 
Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly, and he shall father twelve princes. And I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money. Every male among the men of Abraham's house he circumcised in the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, the precious promises that are contained within it. Give us faith as we hear them now. Give us a heart that is cut to the quick that we might repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Help us to hear with earnestness this wonderful text of your covenant mercy and grace towards people such as us. Covenant fulfilled in Christ to whom we now look. Open our eyes, we pray, that we might see him. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think I was 12 years old when I signed my first contract of any kind. Soccer was the sport of my youth. I wanted to be the best soccer player I could be. What that meant at that time as a 12-year-old, that I needed to play with the best soccer club around. So I tried out for the Dallas Texans Soccer Club. And after that tryout, they offered me a contract. And when I put pen to paper, in a genuine sense, a relationship began between me and the club. There were commitments that I was making, my family was making as we signed that contract together. There was also commitments that the club was making, commitments of coaching, progress, development, But there's also a truth that there was an addition of sorts to my own identity in certain ways as a a young 12-year-old because now I could say I was a a Dallas Texan. And we come today to this famous covenant God cuts with Abraham. And throughout the ages, people have often likened covenants in Scripture to contracts, legal documents that establish relationships, commitments and promises, even new identities. But I don't think it's always the best thing for us in our context today to think of a covenant as a contract. Because certainly for most of us, contracts are so impersonal. You know, we sign contracts for a phone, sign contracts for a mortgage, sign contracts for an education. Whatever it may be, they tend to be much more impersonal than a biblical covenant is. Because don't you notice, even as we read the text, that biblical covenants are immensely personal, immensely relational. As God meets humankind through a covenant and promises to bless them through their obedience and threatens curses for their disobedience. And that's what we see exactly in this covenant that he made with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham, which is the simple theme of this entire chapter. And it's a covenant made with Abraham that you need to understand because without a proper understanding of Genesis 17, it is genuinely impossible to rightly understand the rest of Scripture. 
I would submit to you this morning, if you don't understand exactly what's happening in Genesis 17, you can't make sense of the nation of Israel's history. You can't make sense of the fullness of the work of Jesus Christ. You can't even make sense of the apostles' ministry after Jesus ascended and left them to grow the church and expand the kingdom. There's still a lot that hangs on this simple chapter. But even though it is quite simple, it's much more complex I've spoken with a number of you this week that have asked me a number of questions related to Genesis 17. And I have said, well, we'll have to talk about it later because I won't even get to it on Sunday. There's only so many things we can cover in this covenant of circumcision that God gave to Abraham. But we're going to try to hit the essential points. We're going to try to hit the main themes that we see across the way. And as I read the text, you may have noticed these words of covenant, these words of circumcision, repeated, repeated, repeated. But in the midst of all the words of covenant and circumcision, did you notice that in this text, Abram or Abraham falls down twice? You see it in verse 3. Abram falls on his face. Then you see it in verse 17. He falls on his face again. And if you want to understand the simple flow of the text, it's these two parts that in many ways surround Abram's falls. Abraham's fall on his face. And so we'll see, first of all, God's covenant faithfulness in the first 14 verses. So look again at verse 1 as we notice the speed of the covenant. And Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram. So kids, do you know how much time has passed from the end of chapter 16 to the beginning of chapter 17? If you look one verse north, what you see is what? 13 years have passed. And there's no mention whatsoever of anything happening in Abram's life. 13 years gone without any sort of understanding on our part what's happened to this man of faith. He's gone from 86 to 99 in the blink of an eye. Now you do know, don't you, how long 13 years is. I went back earlier this week, January of 2007, 13 years ago. George W. Bush was still president in America. J.K. Rowling had just finished her manuscript for the final Harry Potter book. The iPhone was just announced. The very first one by Steve Jobs 13 years ago. 13 years is a long time. A lot can happen in 13 years. And what it's communicating to us in part here in the beginning of chapter 17 is how God's God's promises, his covenant word, is often so much unhurried. He's not in haste like we often are in haste. Where maybe frantic action or frustrated faith defines our life in the Lord. He is just going about his decrees and plans exactly as he planned he would. The promise never arrives, does it? A second too early or a second too late. But maybe you know how often Christians can can treat God's promises as something like microwavable decrees. You just kind of put it in the spiritual microwave, push the button, and suddenly the promise is going to arrive in your life. And you need to know your Bible better, right, to know that ordinarily they take longer, maybe even much longer, much, much longer than God's people would want them to be. Thirteen years go by. So surely then, Abram may be in this moment wondering yet again if God was indeed going to bring about this promised blessing of offspring. So notice what we see, secondly, in the sovereign of the covenant. As God speaks in verse 1, you'll see what he says. I am God Almighty. 
you have a footnote there, you may notice that the Hebrew is simply El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. Shaddai is a word that we really don't know exactly in Hebrew what it communicates. Historically, traditionally, in our circles, it just means God Almighty, which is why the ESV renders it that way. What we do know is it's a name that shows up 48 times in the Old Testament, 31 times alone in the book of Job. And so as we've tried to understand what this name might mean, we see how God tends to use it. And almost exclusively, God will speak of himself as El Shaddai when he comes to his people who are frail and weak and needing assurance. Because he's the strong, powerful, almighty God of the universe who can act on behalf of his people. So surely then we ought to see Abram in this moment as maybe weak in his faith, maybe frail in his faith, maybe wondering. Is God going to bring about what he said he was going to bring about? And so the sovereign of the covenant comes and says, Abram, I am El Shaddai. And notice how he even commands as the verse continues, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You know, students, what you want to see in these first two verses is how holiness blamelessness, those are the ordinary paths in which we enjoy God's promises. That apart from blamelessness and holiness, we have no reason to expect God's promises to come to pass in our lives. Even this language of walk before me, it's a shepherding metaphor. It pictures a sheep who would walk before its shepherd, listening to the shepherd's word and going where the shepherd guides and directs. And is not that the ordinary posture of the Christian life or ought to be the ordinary posture of our life in Christ. Walking ahead, following the shepherd, but at times walking ahead, listening to his voice, following his directions, going wherever he says we must. And so notice Abram's response in verse 3, he fell on his face. You know, you don't want to rush past these kind of seemingly meaningless moments in Scripture. Abram meets El Shaddai. It's a theophany. He appeared before Abram. He hears the covenant word of the covenant sovereign king. And what is the natural, ordinary response of Abram in that moment? To lay down. I wonder if you've ever fallen, literally, down when you've heard God's word. Or spiritually, the heaviness of God's glory is so great through the power of his word that you just can't stand upright. Maybe you know that this is the ordinary posture of God's people when they meet with God. Falling down in reverence. Doesn't mean we do it every time. But if you've never done it, maybe you have reason to wonder if you've heard rightly who this God is and what he commands of you. So don't notice only the speed and the sovereignty of the covenant. Notice the surety of the covenant in verse 3 through 8. If you just scan your eyes through verse 3 through 8, you see God reiterating promises to Abram that we've already seen multiple times by this point in Genesis. Mainly promises about a multitude of nations. Promises about a multitude of offspring. And to reiterate that promise to Abram, God does a couple of things to underscore its significance, its surety. Notice verse 5. First of all, he changes Abram's name. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abram means exalted father. And essentially Abraham means exalted father of nations. And you might know how in the ancient world names meant a lot more than they tend to mean today. At least spiritually in their significance. Consider for a moment 
Abram's experience of being named Abram for 99 years. Exalted father. Yet the only child he has is through his servant Hagar. Would not his experience have been something of shame maybe? Thinking little of his ability to have children. Having children was a sign of obedience. It was a sign of blessing. Childlessness was a sign of barrenness. It was a sign of cursing. And here is exalted father and the only way he can get a son is through a servant. And now God says, you're exalted father of nations. So imagine later on that day, Abram going to the 300 men in his household who are warriors and saying, gentlemen, you no longer may call me Lord Abram. You must now call me Lord Abraham. Because I just spoke with Yahweh and he said, I am the exalted father of nations. And some of them might have looked out the corner of the eye at the other person standing next to him and thought, is he going a bit batty in his old age? 99 years old, exalted father of nations? Of course, God is the covenant-keeping God of the impossible. To underscore and reiterate even further, look at verse 7. The nature, the length of this covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Kids, what does it say? For an everlasting covenant. The promise is perpetual. The covenant promise is going to be permanent to Abraham, you and your offspring after you. I had a few friends throughout the years that have been full-time photographers, and each of them has their niche. niche. You know, some of them have majored, I can think of one in particular, on infant and toddler portraits. A member of the last church I was at was an exclusive wedding photographer. Uh, I knew another that primarily did engagement pictures and photos. And if you ever think of an engagement portfolio, you know, you, you tend to be able to predict what you're going to look at in certain ways, right? You have, you have the guy and the girl full of glee in places with poses that are meant to show their immense love and expectation for one another. But none of those pictures in and of themselves communicate anything about an engagement, do they? Until the pictures move away from the faces of the fiancé and the affiance then move to the finger and zoom in on what's around the finger. A ring, an engagement ring that communicates what? The commitment, the promises, the nature of that relationship. And we see another sign of another covenant as we move from the surety of the covenant to the sign of the covenant. You'll notice in verse 9 that Abraham gets a command from God, you shall keep my covenant. Well, how are you to do that? How is Abraham to do that? Look at verse 10 and 11. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the foreskins, the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, you want to pause for a second, students, especially you want to pause for a second and recognize that circumcision is entirely significant to the life of God's people throughout Scripture. But you want to ask the question of why. Why is it so important? Why is it so significant? What does it even mean? What does it represent? And again, if you don't get this right, you're going to struggle to get a lot of biblical theology 
right across the two testaments. So a lot of people today will tend to think that circumcision for the nation of Israel was simply a physical ethnic marker. Just a physical sign that marked them off as ethnic Jews. Well, it's not true. Especially because many ancient Near Eastern cultures practiced circumcision. Even some males and females. What was unique physically about the Abrahamic covenant and its sign is verse 12. It was put on infants. Do you see that? He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male in your house is what God commands. And some people have said, because they've thought about the anatomical nature of infants, that it's on the eighth day that the blood clots best, and so God knew best. That's the right time to cut away the flesh of the foreskin. Well, that's certainly possible. Surely in God's wisdom, he knew that. But the spiritual significance begins to be seen if you think even more deeply about the Old Testament patterns of sacrifices and offerings. When God required animals to be offered unto him, they had to live for a week, seven days, before they could be offered to him. Likewise, a child of believers had to live for a week, seven days, before on the eighth day they could be offered and dedicated unto the Lord. Why even is circumcision the nature of the covenant? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it, if the central promise of blessing in this covenant is children. Multitude of offspring, multitude of nations. It makes sense that the sign of the covenant would then be placed on the male organ of procreation, marking it off as Devoted and dedicated to the Lord. Now, if we wanted to do a full study of circumcision, which are all the questions I've gotten this week, you'd be here well past lunch, probably be sleeping into the afternoon, and we still wouldn't have reached the New Testament. We'd have to use words like initiation, consecration, purification, dedication, and see it all. But we don't have time to see it all, so I want to give you just two words. What does circumcision ultimately represent? Because you need to understand, yes, it's a physical sign, but it points to a spiritual reality. Circumcision wasn't something merely done in the flesh. It pointed to a heart reality. So the first word you want to see is regeneration. We read some of these texts even earlier in our service, but simply one I'll throw out to you this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moses giving the final kind of covenant language to the people as he is getting ready to die and depart from them. And he says in Deuteronomy 30, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So I even, Jeremiah 4 verse 4 says, circumcise yourselves, meaning circumcise your hearts. That's why Jeremiah 9 and Romans 2 can speak about the danger of being merely circumcised in the flesh. Because the physical sign was always meant to point to an ultimate spiritual reality. The cutting away of the sinful nature in the heart. That's why the Jewish people fell so many times trusting only in the physical sign of circumcision, not recognizing that it was pointing them to faith and an ultimate spiritual reality. And don't you know that many people even today in our context trust in baptism the exact same way, not recognizing that baptism too is a physical sign that points to a spiritual reality. Just as circumcision was about the cutting away of the flesh, symbolizing the cutting away of sin from the heart, so is baptism the washing That is pointing to the washing away of sin. Well, the other word that I would give you, in addition to regeneration, because cutting away of the flesh of the heart is just Old Testament language for the new birth, conversion, regeneration, is righteousness. So regeneration and righteousness. We find this in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Paul's talking about Father Abraham, our relationship to him, and he simply says there, Romans 4, 11, that he received, Abraham received circumcision as a sign 
and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith before he was circumcised. So it's a sign of the righteousness he had by faith. It's not a subjective sign about Abraham's faith. It's about the objective reality of what that faith lays hold of. God's promise, which brings righteousness. We've already seen in Genesis chapter 15. He believed in the Lord and was counted to him as righteousness. As a seal of that righteousness, God said, be circumcised. Because it's the objective sign of the righteousness you receive by faith alone. Unless we think that circumcision, the sign of the covenant, is just an optional matter for the Old Testament people. Notice finally in this section the severity of the covenant in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you understand verse 14, you understand that what God is announcing there is you will be cut off one way or another. The old nature of sin will be cut off in your heart through faith or because you remain in unbelief, I will cut you off in judgment from the blessings of this covenant promise. So God's covenant faithfulness now leads to Abraham's covenant joyfulness. First, you need to see why he was struck with amazement, bewilderment. Look at verse 15. Not only does Abraham get a name change, Sarai does too. God says, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her. Now, kids, you might think, what's the significance of one letter? The I to the H in English. Well, the meaning is actually pretty unique in Hebrew. It basically moves Sarah from being, Sarah is like local princess, because the name essentially means princess. Local princess to global princess, just with one word. And that's exactly what God intends through Sarah, doesn't he? Universal blessing, because notice what he says to her in verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. The promise goes through the queen named Sarah. And understandably, this time, Abraham falls on his face. Probably not in reverence. Probably in bewilderment. Because look at what we're told in verse 17, and Abram fell on his face and laughed. Now, scholars have a field day with verse 17. Is it a laugh of doubt? Is it a laugh of joy? I think in all likelihood, based on what is getting ready to come in the passage, he's just struck in amazement of unbelief. Really? I, a 99-year-old man, and my 90-year-old wife will soon have a child. Lord, I have a better idea which is always a bad thing to say to Yahweh, but nevertheless, Abraham says it. Look at verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I've already got a son. Just use him. That's easier. Plain and obvious. Already a parent. Don't you know that sometimes that we can take the seeming impossibility of God's promise and almost like Abraham suggests a substitute motion. What you have promised God, it's too great, it's too stupendous, it's too amazing, it's too impossible. Well, here's just an easier way to do something like it. And I'd be happy with that. That would satisfy me. I'd be content with that. But here you are over here doing this. And nobody thinks you can do that. I'm not even sure I think you can do that. I wonder if you've ever done that recently. 
heard a promise from God's word, said, no way. Well, Lord, why don't you do this instead? Well, look what God says in verse 19. No. I will not do it. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name. He laughs. That's what Isaac means. Now, we said this last week with Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael's name means God hears. Abram trying to take the promise into his own power, live according to the flesh, not according to faith. And then for the rest of the time, Ishmael is in his house. He gets this constant reminder, God hears. The rest of the time, Isaac living in his house, Abraham in his household, a constant reminder, he laughs. And surely in time, Isaac's name became a means of incredible joyfulness for Abraham laughing constantly that he, this old man with his old wife, still has a son through natural, procreative means. The promise is going to go through Isaac. You see that at the end of verse 19, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God even reminds, even reiterates the promises that he's made regarding Ishmael and his family, multitude of nations, in the following verses 20 and 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, and he will be born next year. Now, those of you who are parents or were parents years ago remember probably how Christian parenting sometimes seems as preoccupied with telling children how they must obey, not just that they must obey. And maybe you have some little ditty like we do in our house about what true obedience means. It means obeying joyfully, completely, immediately. Because much of the glory of true obedience is its immediacy, its joy, its wholehearted devotion. And that's exactly what gets underscored here in the remainder of the passage. Look at what we're told in verse 22 and following when God had finished talking with Abraham, he went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael's son and all those born in his house, bought with his money every male among them, the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. And if you skip down to verse 26, that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. It was an immense bloodletting. As best we can tell, there's north of 300 men that needed to be circumcised that very day. Abraham gets to it joyfully, completely, immediately. I wonder how many of you hear God's word even today and are cut to the quick by the work of the Spirit saying, yes, I too must obey this very day joyfully, completely, and immediately because I've heard God's covenant promise. Earlier this week, I think, yeah, Thursday afternoon, I, I went on my afternoon run with my two older boys. And I had certainly read the weather report wrong. <clears throat> we got out, got going a half mile into the run. They're biking, I'm running. It begins to rain, north wind blowing, quite cold. And because we're foolish stone men, we kept going. My phone had said the rain was supposed to be done, so surely it would 
finished momentarily. Well, we kept going for a few more miles, and the rain only picked up, and the wind only picked up. You know, eventually we got to the turnaround point, and I looked at one of the boys, and I said, it's only going to get harder. Do you know why? They were kind of dumbfounded, you know, shivering there in the cold and still wanting to get all the way through. And I said, well, you know, back home is always pretty much straight uphill. It's going north, and the cold wind always comes out of the north. And it's still raining, and we got to go back home. So work hard. Off they went. Eventually, I caught up to one of them, and he said, Daddy, this is really hard. I said, I know, but keep going. Take off, and I'll catch you on the next big hill, and I'll help you out. So you get to the next big hill. Feet start slowing down. You see the bike in front of you, and so I just come up alongside and, and put my hand on his back and begin to push while I'm running, and he's biking all the way home. And I thought to myself as we were getting actually ready to turn onto our street, what a picture of God's promise coming to us in moments of weakness, helping us along that we might get all the way home. That's exactly what God is doing here in this covenant promise to Abraham. Even to us through his word and spirit, coming alongside, placing a spiritual hand on our back that we might be enabled, energized to make it all the way home. And so to make sure that we all make it all the way home, let me point out a few final things, summary truths about God's covenant promise in this passage. The first of which is the centrality of the promise. And by this I mean, kids, I want you to notice the pulsating heartbeat of the covenant promise. Look back at verse 7. A verse that is very much worth underlining, memorizing, writing upon your heart. Look at the end. He says he's going to be a cutting this covenant, promising this covenant as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your children after you. We don't go to the covenant promise to get God's gifts. We go to the covenant promise to get the giver. We don't go to the covenant promise to get God's benefits. We go to the covenant promise to find the benefactor setting our hearts aflame in love. And what you need to know about this promise, which is in some ways reiterated at the end of verse 9, it's the single thread that ties together all of God's covenants in the one covenant of grace. Abraham gets it here in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. Moses gets it in the Mosaic covenant in Exodus chapter 6. David gets it in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The church gets it in the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. And we get it for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth according to Revelation chapter 21. I will be a God to you and you will be my people. This is the centrality of the covenant promise. God himself given to his people. His people and their children, which leads to the second point you need to see, the continuity, the continuity of the covenant. Some of you may know that we Presbyterians make a big deal about Genesis 17, even specifically verse 7, a God to you and your children after you. Four times in this text, God is speaking about this covenant promise as an everlasting promise. He means for the promise to be perpetual to you and to your children. I wonder if you believe that's true or think something happened with the ministry of Christ and the initiation of the new covenant that kicked out all the kids. 
B.B. Warfield, who was a theologian at Princeton Seminary, got the nickname of the Lion of Princeton, once wrote, God has established his church in the days of Abraham and put his children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out, and he has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church, and as such, entitled to its ordinances. And we, of course, as a church, in our confessions of faith, believe that to be totally true. That God's ordinances, his sacraments, belong to believers and to their children. You don't need me today to do a long, drawn-out defense of what we believe about these things. But I simply want to tell you that statement and summary is really that simple. He put the children into the covenant. And nowhere will you find the scripture them kicked out. In fact, in the New Testament, you find in Acts 2, for example, the covenant promise. Two covenant families reiterated. Acts 16, the covenant promise. Two covenant families illustrated. 1 Corinthians 7, the covenant promise to covenant families, emphasized and warned. Galatians chapter 3, the covenant promise to covenant families, assured and guaranteed in the work of Jesus Christ. So kids, when you read this text, what you recognize, if you are in a believing household that's trusting in Yahweh, this is a promise to you as much as it is a promise to me. As much as it is a promise to your mother or father sitting right next to you. I will be a God to you and to your children after you. You want to see the centrality, the continuity, and finally, the certainty of this covenant. So I said, as I read the text at the beginning, see if you could spot, kids, all the promises that God mentions in this passage. If I'm counting right, 12 times in 21 verses he says will, 24 times in 21 verses he says shall. Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, is not the God of maybe, possibly, or even probably. He's the God of certainty. And the reason you know that is because if we fast-forward the scene across Scripture, God has promised Abraham seed and kings. Many millennia forward, we get to the point where, of course, the true offspring of Abraham comes, and he just so happens. To be the king of kings named Jesus Christ who lived perfectly, who hung on a cross spotlessly. And what happened there on the cross? Isaiah 53 says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off from the land of the living. A covenant curse willingly and lovingly taking it into his very own heart. So that sinner like you and I won't have to bear the covenant curse of being cut off in judgment. So the simple question then for all of us today, isn't it? Little more than what we even read earlier in our service. Do you know what Paul was saying in Colossians 2? And we were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Do you know that circumcision received by faith alone? Certainty in God's covenant promise through Christ alone because, of course, Christ is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. Even these covenant promises that he made to Abraham. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are merciful and long-suffering towards us. We do acknowledge that you know better than we do. That we who often wait in frustration 
maybe even frantic action. Know that your ways, your timing is perfect, that your promises are sure in Christ Jesus. So help us to increase in trust as we indeed want to live as your covenant people in this same covenant of grace that you have given to us. The covenant promises made to Abraham that are available to us today through Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.